0: A number of singles here today for this brick weekend building relationships in Christ with a theme of in the center of God's will. Now, being single means different things to different people. For some, it means finally being an adult. You've graduated from high school, it usually takes a year or two or three to really think of yourself as a single, but you finally arrived, at least for some. For others, it just simply means freedom. Freedom from perhaps living at home. Freedom from a mate that uh, you were not staying with, uh, sadly. Uh, For some, it means, I want to get married. And I think that that is the case with a lot of uh, singles. certainly was for me. When we speak of freedom, though... It reminds me of a comment that a lady made when I was counseling her and her husband, for or future husband, uh, about marriage. And I always like to ask the question, what do you want to gain from being married? But then followed up with the question, what do you have to give up by being married? And most people don't think they have to give anything up, but she had the perfect answer. She said, I won't be able to hang my pictures where I want them. <laughs> and in other words, being single, she could hang them any place she wanted, but being married meant that she had to take into account another individual. It'd be easy, I suppose, to give a sermon today on the subject of marriage. Marriage is certainly important, but I think that singles often hear messages about being single and being married and all this sort of thing, and so I want to focus on something a little bit different here and that is to ask first of all the question is this really what's most important in life it certainly is an important thing God made us male he made us female he put within us the desire to share our lives with someone of the opposite sex God made us that way that's right and that's good But we always have to keep the big picture in mind. I think that, is that thunder? Yeah. Okay. It's dry out there. I think all of us remember the profound and emotional comments by Mr. Martin Montgomery during the Behind the Work video that was shown at the feast this last year. I'd like to quote a little bit of what he said just to remind you. I think that you probably were touched by it. When he was asked what did he look forward to in the kingdom of God, in the family of God, he says, I think you know, but that's not first, and it cannot be first, because Christ is first, God is first. What we look forward to is raising a rising in the air, not just to meet Morgan, his daughter who was killed at the summer camp several years ago, I look forward to that very much, but that must not be overshadowed, rising in the air to meet the King of kings, the one that died for us. The beauty of God's plan is that if I seek that, I get both. I'll see the King of kings, and I'll see my loved ones. You know, when we put God first, when we put God at the center of our lives, the center of his will. We get it all, all that is good and right. So while we have our personal pursuits in this physical life, education and career, marriage and family, and so many other things, we must not forget what is infinitely of greater importance. We have something that the world does not have. The world has education and career, marriage and family. But we have something more than education and career and physical marriage and family. We certainly have a spiritual family as was brought out in the sermonette today. And we look forward to meeting our Lord and Savior in the air and living forever in the family of God. Not in some big candy store in the sky as I often refer to it, but as a family family. Working productively, doing things. First of all, for a thousand years, bring peace to this earth, to this troubled world. But we need to understand that God has called us for a purpose. We're not here for personal salvation alone, we're not here to find a mate. Now, that might be part of your Life's goal, but that certainly isn't the most important. It may seem like it at the moment, but there are other things more important. Over in John, the fourth chapter, John 4, and beginning in verse 31, a very well known passage for those of us in the church. He had been talking with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman there at Jacob's well. And in verse 31, it says, In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And so his disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? All they could think of was the physical. And, you know, that's a, there's, there's a lesson in that for us because we're not different from the disciples. We think of the immediate, that which is right now, We think of the physical before we think of the spiritual. That's just natural. That's normal for us. And yet he was looking to something else. And Jesus said to them, verse 34, My food, that which gives me energy and strength and a reason to get up, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say, there are still four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. He who reaps gains wages for eternal life. And that's what we are doing during this lifetime. We are gathering wages for eternal life. And then he says here, verse... um, well, verse 36 again. And he who reaps it receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And truly we have entered into the labors of those who have gone before us. We see even to this day how individuals who come to us knew about the work through Mr. Armstrong, through the Plain Truth magazine, through the work that had been done many years before. I often wonder whose tithes it was, whose prayers it was, that paved the way for me to become a part of this work. We have many people to thank, and there are people out there right now who someday will thank you for what you've done, May may not understand exactly who did it and so forth, but they will look back. And in the resurrection, I'm sure we're going to know a lot of things that we cannot know yet today about those who have gone before us. And so while we look to these physical things, wonderful things that God has given to us, even building relationships with one another, it is truly Most important to build our relationships with God the Father and Jesus Christ, but also to do the work that he's called us for. When we think of how few God has called today, and when you look at the whole world, you realize that the task he's set before us is so great that we'll never be able to do it by ourselves. Only through Jesus Christ, through his working, will we be able to do it. And we don't always know exactly how that's going to work out, but we live by faith and we do what we can right now. From time to time, people ask me the question, how long do you think we have until that time when we rise in the sky to meet our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? To be a part of that spiritual family in a very spiritual way with new bodies that never get old, that never... Uh, experience pain and suffering as we do in this physical existence. And trying to be too precise in answering that question has been one of the mistakes that we have made historically in the church. There was a time when we thought our work would be finished in 1972 and that Christ would return in 1975. And when it became apparent that that was not going to happen, then we thought, well, we should not have counted Nebuchadnezzar seven years of insanity to subtract from that 2,520. And so it'll be 1982. And then I suppose others have set other dates from that time until now. But when Mr. Oguin wrote in the Bible study course or asked questions, uh, he was trying to point out that we know that we're in the general time frame. We don't know the exact year, but... When you add those years up, as it was, he came to 2017 uh forgetting year zero. 2018 is what it should have been. But nevertheless, that was not intended to be a a precise date. But now we're in 2019. So when is the end going to come? Sometimes we give a range of years. I've tried to avoid that other than to say that I don't think it's going to be 50 years. I can't see this going on that long. But we never know for sure what God has in mind. But we do believe that we are definitely at the end of the age. And it is very close. Now, others have tried to plug individuals into prophetic events. I'd heard that Mr. Armstrong thought that it might have been uh, Joseph Broz Tito, the uh, the leader of Yugoslavia at one time, a little bit before my time, although he was there during my time, but uh, it goes back uh, as far as just following the war and things that happened that, other than the fact that he was a communist there uh, ruling over that area of Yugoslavia, um, I didn't know too much about him. But I do remember from my college days that people were thinking it's this fellow by the name of Franz Josef Strauss. He's going to be the leader of the beast power at the end. And that didn't turn out because he died. And so after that, people thought, Carl von Habsburg, he's part of the Habsburg dynasty. Well, I suppose that uh, could be, but I think we've passed beyond that. And now the hot name is Carl Theodor zu Gutenberg. And that's the one that I've actually heard at least one church member say, that's the one, it's going to be him, I'm absolutely certain. Well, uh, we'll see. Somehow I don't think that's the one, but I don't know. My My guess is just as bad as yours. <laughs> then we've tried to identify the man of sin. Remember... Joseph Tkach was the man of sin for many people, and we've had various two witnesses: Mr. Herbert Armstrong and Garner Ted Armstrong. Well, that didn't work out, and then it was Ted Armstrong and Dr. Meredith. That hasn't worked out either. And then uh, I I heard the story. I don't know how true it was, but I heard the story that three men walked into the office up there in Canada when it was out west. I think this during Worldwide days. Three men, and they claimed to be the two witnesses. Now, their, their math was, uh, it's, it's a head-scratcher, but now I know another individual that thinks of two witnesses. In fact, I think there are many people out there that think that they are literally Moses and Elijah, and one fellow thinks he's been up in the clouds. They've been floating around someplace for the last 3,500 years just waiting to come down. So, in other words, they've been in the earth's atmosphere, but they haven't come yet. Well, I think Dr. Meredith had the right answer. He thought that we should let God choose his two witnesses, and that will become clear when that time comes. We do not know how long, and we do not know who the major players are at this time. But today, let's look at what we do know. For we're not in total darkness regarding the times in which we are living there's a tendency to go to one extreme or the other. There are those who want to jump the gun and determine for themselves when the end is and who the major players are. Then there are those that go to the other extreme by saying, the Lord is late, is coming. In fact, over in Second Peter, the third chapter, it tells us that, that there are those scoffers at the end who are going to believe that We've got a lot of time left. Notice in chapter 3 of Second Peter 2. I'm sorry, Second Peter 3. Second Peter 3, verse 1. It says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, this second letter, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, And of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, know this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. I think that we see people out there who once were a part of the church of God, but they've gone out of the church, often following their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, we have people in the world, certainly worldly people saying that. We have people who have been in the church and have left thinking that way. And I suppose that we even have people in the church, in the church of God, thinking, oh, well, we're not living in the last days. Uh, that, you know, that time is way off. We just don't know those things, as some people would think. I've heard that there are those in some of the, the groups that think that we're not living in the last days, that this could go on for a long time. Well, I don't know. I don't know that firsthand. I've just heard rumors that effect. And I suppose that there probably are people like that. How many we don't know. But notice verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is very patient. He is allowing time for some to come to repentance, but also for some to learn some very painful lessons during this physical lifetime so that later on they can have that opportunity and will have learned from how not to do it. they'll learn to desire, at least, to do it the right way, and God will give them that opportunity to do it at a later time. So God is patient. But we should not think that time is going to go on forever. What do the Scriptures tell us regarding our time and the times in which we live? Let's notice Isaiah, the first chapter, Isaiah 1 and verse 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, if that is not a description of our Western nations, the Israelite nations especially, I don't know what is. I read an interesting article here in the latest uh, Tomorrow's World, which uh, has that wonderful picture of, is masculinity really toxic? I think think everybody likes this picture, from what I've heard, except I think that Mr. Smith has taken some heat on this, and uh, also... There was um, someone that looked at this and said, well, the devil is in one eye and something else in the other eye, and we need to find this baby and, you know, help him out. And this person really is worried about that because we don't know what the kid is thinking. But anyway, uh, there's an interesting article here talking about how the the South, the, the nations of the Southern Hemisphere, Africa, and South America are really chiding the religious leaders in North America and in Europe because we went down there and we preached the word to them. I say preached the word as much as it was in order to introduce them to the Bible. And now we're rejecting the Bible in our northern hemisphere. And they don't like it very well. They see us as being corrupt. Why did we go all that trouble to teach them the Bible if we don't believe it? Interesting article. I hope you'll read that. But here in Isaiah, the first chapter, he calls us rulers of Sodom and rulers of Gomorrah. You people of Gomorrah. I just learned yesterday or day before that one of our telecasts, one of my telecasts, is being rejected in New Zealand. Because I do mention the fact that we are spitting in God's face. And it does have a picture of a pride flag in the background. Uh, They don't like that sort of thing. They can put all kinds of filth and garbage and rot on there. But please don't tell us that something else might be uh, right. There might be some other standards in this world. They're censors. And they only censor the truth. It's the truth that they don't like, that they cannot stand. And that should tell us something. So here in Isaiah, it's talking about what's happening in our world today. You'll notice in chapter 2 that it says in verse 2, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. So Isaiah was not talking about his day only. A lot of what we read here certainly applied to that day. It certainly applied to the nation of Judah, specifically Judah at that time. But there is an end-time context. There is a duality here of prophecy. And notice in chapter 2, and verse 8 it says, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Verse 6, For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, Notice over in the the third chapter. Here he he speaks in verse 4. I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. Now when we look at children to be our princes, if you want to see something that's rather comical, if it weren't so serious, just look at the 23 candidates that are vying for power on one side of the uh, the aisle. You know, we ought to stop and think about that. What's going on here in our world? And they're all running toward the feminine side of things, apologizing for their privileges and running toward women. I'll have a woman as my vice president or the women that are running, which are quite prominent in the... the, uh, case there in in the field. And then we have the Speaker of the House and the President acting like children, uh, arguing back and forth. It says, The people will be oppressed, everyone by another and everyone by his neighbor. The child shall be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. It's interesting that Oftentimes when I come into a room these days, those who have gone through the living education program will often stand up. And, you know, I kind of feel funny about that. But that's what God says that young people are due are to rise up before the, well, um, I'm trying to think the hoary head. I think, that's, I think that means gray. But uh, uh, don't have much hair up there, but nevertheless they, they show respect. And that's good. That's good for them as it was good for me when I was growing up. I didn't learn that, but I surely learned some other things about showing respect toward elders. Notice down in verse 10, So say to the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. But woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Now, a number of the nations have gone down that road much more so. Uh, Theresa May is now resigning or just resigned yesterday, the day before. Um, but England has had a number of female uh, leaders at the very top. Uh, Canada. Only one I can think of. There may be uh, uh, others, but I think there's one that I think of, and she wasn't in office very long. But when you look at the positions, not the top job necessarily, but the other jobs uh, in, in Parliament, many of them are women. And women are taking over. I don't mean to demean our ladies here, but we need to understand that this was not God's intent from the beginning, it says, "Oh my people, those who lead you cause you to err." Now, he's first of all said that women rule over them, and he says that those who lead you cause you to err. The idea that if women were in charge everything would be okay, well that kind of was debunked by this passage. Whether it's men or women, if we don't respect and honor and obey God, it's not going to go well. And it has nothing to do with the sex in that way, whether it's male or female. If we don't obey God, it's going to go in the wrong direction. And they destroy the way of your paths. It's interesting how much power women wield in the world today. The universities are, uh, what, 60, 65% female? Uh, Depends on which one, but uh, overall, they're taking over. We've promoted women and put down men to where men don't know. What to do? Young boys, they don't know what their role is in life. As we go through here, as we look at these chapters, we see here in chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, or Judah, uh, he says, Judge please between me and my vineyard. And then down in verse 7 it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. The point being that this applies not to Judah alone, but to Israel as well. There are a number of references here, if you go through it and just look at it, and you will see that there are references to the house of Israel as well as Judah. There are references to Samaria. The head of Ephraim, chapter 7, verse 9, is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Ramaliah's son. And uh, so there are references there. And it shows that that he's talking to more than just the Jews of that day. But he's looking to the future. A future fulfillment of these prophecies. Now when we get over to... uh, Let's move over to... um, chapter 30, Isaiah 30. And we'll get to the, the heart and the core of what I'm trying to give to you today. If you want to have a title, uh, The End Will Come Suddenly. Uh, we live in a world where we are moving toward the climax of the age. And when it comes, it's going to happen much more quickly than we might expect. Notice chapter 30. And verse 8, Isaiah 30, verse 8. Now go, write it before them on a tablet and note it in a scroll that for time to come forever and ever. In other words, took time off into the future. We've understood this as being a prophecy of the end time. That this is a rebellious people, lying children. Children who will not hear the law of the Lord. Is that not a description of our world today? They don't want to hear the law of God. And if someone brings it out, they'll censor it. It's okay, I suppose, if you talk about the law of God, as long as you don't get specific. As long as you don't condemn the world, uh, its actions that, uh, that they're carrying on. So said, This are rebellious people, lying children, children who not hear the law of the eternal, who say to the seers, Do not see unto the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth Things things that are easy. Tell us what we want to hear. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Verse 12, Therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel, Because you despise this word, and trust in oppression and perversity, and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall. A bulge in a high wall whose pre- breaking comes suddenly in an instant. It is bulging out and it's ready to break. Mount St. Helens, I talked about that in the book uh, Acts of God. I uh, brought something out on that. That there was a bulge, I believe, on the north side of Mount St. Helens. It was quite a significant bulge. But it didn't just kind of seep out the lava and all. When it blew, it blew suddenly and powerfully. He shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare so that there not be found among its fragments a shard, a little chunk or piece of the pottery. He says, so there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth. In other words, just to scrape out the the ashes from the fireplace. Or to take water from the cistern. When it breaks, it's going to shatter altogether. So when we read Isaiah, we see that the prophecy is not for Judah alone. It's not for that time alone. There are dualities here. For a time, and God says that when it happens, it's going to happen suddenly. Let's look at Jeremiah and see what Jeremiah says. First of all, we need to understand that, again, even though Jeremiah wrote after Israel had gone into captivity, he says here in chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. So he's talking to more than just simply the Jews. The third chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 3. Here he talks about backsliding Israel in verse 6. And then in verse 7 he says, the latter part of verse 7, But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot. Notice over in verse 18, In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. He's talking about a time yet in the future. He's talking about both the Jews and Israel. Israel. And we see that all the way through here. The fourth chapter, verse 19, talks about a time of war. It talks about the character of the people. He says, O my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. This is verse 19 of chapter 4. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered, and my curtains in a moment. How long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children. Boy, if that doesn't describe our political scene today in this country, I don't know what does. And it's not our country alone. As some of the other Israelite countries as well. They have no understanding. Continuing in verse 22. They are wise to do evil, but to do good. They have no knowledge. Let's move over to chapter 5 and verse 7. It says, How shall I pardon you for this? You, your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I fed them to the full... Then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. They were like well-fed, lusty stallions, everyone neighing after his neighbor's wife. We live truly in an adulterous age. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Go up on her walls and destroy But do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Israel is already in captivity when this is written. Have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, It is not he, neither will evil come upon us. Nothing's going to happen because of these things. These preachers out here—not just us, but there are others out there—warning. I think that we are doing more so, but I'm—I'm I'm, I'm speaking even in preachers in the world. There's some out there who are saying this is not a good direction to go, and speaking out against the abominations that are here on this this earth. They don't have the law of God in the truest sense, the complete sense. But there are those who recognize the world is going in a very bad direction. They have lied about the Lord and said, It is not He, neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. Now, we don't have to worry about these things anymore. We've got it all covered. Verse 13, And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Verse 14, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Eternal. Again, this would have to be yet in the future. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not understand or do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty men. Notice verse 18. Nevertheless, in those days. Verse 20. Declare this to the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying thus and such. So we find that it's talking of a future time. Not just back then, but all these prophecies for our future. And we see that women are ruling over. We see our children are insolent. We see that we're like silly children, foolish, and so forth. Notice chapter 6 and verse 26. It says, O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son most bitter lamentation, for the plunderer will suddenly come upon us. God shows that when this happens, it's going to be sudden. Mr. Davy Crockett recommended a book to me. It's called The Jungle Grows Back: America and Our Imperiled World by Robert Kagan. Very interesting book, a very short book, 160 pages or so. Uh not, not very big pages. It's it's really quite an easy read, my kind of book. I always like short books, easy read. But It's got a lot of profound information in it. I'd like to read just a little bit here in the context of all this. He talks about the fact that there are people that think that mankind is getting smarter, more righteous, more whatever. That It's an upward path. We are evolving to a better plane. And he says, this story of human progress is a myth, however. If the last century has taught us anything, it is that scientific and technological progress and the expansion of knowledge, while capable of improving our lives materially, have brought no lasting improvement in human behavior. i saying that's what the last century should have taught us. It's easy for us to think of people back whenever it was. For, for younger people, anything of the last century is ancient history. I was born just at the end, right after the war, uh, the Second World War. And so there was some little bit of connection there because my father and and, uh, uncles and others had fought in that war or at least been in the military during that time. My father didn't fight in; he didn't go overseas, but he was in the military during that time. And my wife's father was on a ship crossing the Atlantic, a destroyer protecting merchant ships and so we have some sense of it we saw movies that portrayed the second world war but the first world war that's that's way back we don't have any survivors of that now i guess the last one has died and the civil war that was a real long time ago and so we can see monuments and everything but we think of those people back then weren't very civilized. we are so much more civilized so much smarter now so much more up to date. We've got smartphones. We've got it all. We're talking about artificial intelligence where our cars will drive themselves and even trucks. That's really scary. I don't know about you, but I, I you know, my experience with computers is that they do crash from time to time. No intended pun there. But that's kind of scary. But the idea, he says, that we are getting better and better, that there's lasting improvement, is a myth. It says, when it comes to human behavior, history is a jagged line with no discernible slope. In other words, it gets a little better at times and down, but it's, it's a jagged line, but there's no discernible slope to it all. It's not getting a little bit better, even though it goes, it's just flat, flat line. History had not led to the triumph of liberalism, Uh, speaking of liberalism economically and various other ways, uh, it had led to Hitler and Stalin. That's what history has led to. And he points out in in a passage I'm not going to read here, but he does point out very interestingly, he said that there, there are Hitlers and Stalins all over the place in our world right now. They just don't have the opportunity to come forward yet. We don't have to try to plug a name in there. He's out there. In fact, there's more than one of them out there. It's just a matter of the opportunity for an individual to rise up. Many continue to assume that even so, our dark recent past is indeed in the past and cannot recur. The thesis of the book is that the last 75 years have been an anomaly in human history because of the United States' strength and power following World War II because we have oceans on both sides and friendly neighbors on both sides we have the ability to project that power around the world and to be a policeman to the world and while the world doesn't always like it and while our country makes plenty of mistakes nevertheless it has kept the major powers from going at it France and Germany and even England, going at it overseas. It says, The present world order has favored liberalism, democracy, and capitalism, not only because they are right and better. Presumably they are, or were right. Sorry, let me read that again. The present world order has favored liberalism, democracy, and capitalism, not only because they are right and better. Presumably they were right and better in the 1930s as well, but because the most powerful nation in the world since 1945 has been a liberal, democratic, capitalist nation. That's the only thing that's kept it, not because of those ideologies being better, but because there is a superpower that has kept the peace. That's the thesis that he's saying here. The 1920s and 30s were a time when, like today, most Americans did not believe they faced an existential threat to their security and way of life. When threats were visible but uncertain, when Americans were weary and disillusioned by a recent war. The United States was not only a great, uh, the, the great power in the world, even though it was uh, richest and for a time the strongest, Great Britain had taken responsibility for maintaining that peace uh, before that time. Now he says, As the British author and politician Norman Angel observed in 1909, it's an important date here, the world's great civilized powers had passed out of that stage of development in which any nation could benefit from conquering another by force. Reasoned calculations of self-interest precluded war among them. In a world of growing prosperity, democracy, and increasing connection among peoples, great power war was obsolete. Now what he's pointing out here is is a comparison from then till now. We think, don't we, well these nations in Europe, they're not going to go at war with one another. We're much more enlightened today. It turned out that they were no better in predicting the future than we are, and also no worse. They did not foresee that the deadliest challenge to Western civilization would come a mere five years after Engel wrote those words. And not from the Middle East or Africa or Asia, but from the great and horrifically destructive war in the very heart of that civilization between nations that were the home of Mozart, and of Rousseau and Voltaire. In other words, not someplace else in the world, but they thought they were so enlightened during that time leading up to World War I. And he wrote that this couldn't happen because we are so enlightened today at that time. And yet five years later, here were the great European powers at war once again. They could not imagine that the world's leading commercial powers So interdependent in the modern global economy would wage a war for such primitive goals as territory and military domination, that they would be inspired not by rational calculations of interest, but by fear, pride, and ambition, and that war would enjoy the enthusiastic backing of their people fueled by nationalism and tribalism. Said They did not anticipate a rebellion against liberalism from the right in the form of a German ruling class defending the all-powerful state, and from the left in the form of Bolshevism rejecting the liberal principles of private property and individual rights. Then every one of their assumptions about the modern world exploded at once." Just a short statement, it all happened so fast. Americans viewed Europe in those years, the way they view the Arab world today, as hopelessly mired in ageless, ethnic, national, and sectarian uh, hatreds. Franklin Roosevelt warned that the world was descending into a state of international anarchy and instability from which there could be no escape. ...through mere isolation or neutrality. And then on page 24, it says, "...they learned, and we have now forgotten, that when things start to go wrong, they can go very wrong very quickly, that once a world order breaks down, the worst qualities of humanity emerge from the rocks and run wild." And then one, well, two quotes here. On page 29, he's talking about what happened at the end of World War II or near the end in 1943, just over halfway there. It says Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, put it that year, if the United States did not, quote, pull the fangs of the predatory animals of this world... They would multiply and grow in strength and would be in our throats again once more in a short generation. It's interesting that he describes them as wild animals. Now there's a a quote later on on page 143 that really sums this up very, very succinctly. He quotes from a character in Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. And this character was asked how he went bankrupt. And he responded, gradually and then suddenly. And that's kind of the way a wall gradually builds up and then suddenly it happens. That's really what he's saying there, that the jungle grows back. If we neglect certain things, the jungle where all the wild animals are, are going to grow back. And we're going to once again be mired in war. But the difference is now that we have the weapons of war that are far more destructive than any time in human history. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, that except those days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. No flesh would survive. We're living at a time such as that. In Daniel, the 12th chapter, Daniel 12, it tells us what the end time would be like. In verse 4, he says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So he's talking about the time of the end, and he says, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. I never cease to be amazed. I I know I've said this before. I've talked about it on telecasts, as others have But when you look at the modern chariots, the automobiles, many running to and fro, it's just absolutely astounding and amazing how modern transportation has transformed our world. You know, there have always been people walking here or there, even going by boat or by ox cart or by, uh, you know, some sort of animal-pulled uh, device, but nothing like our world today. The second half of the 20th century saw a transformation in transportation that is just truly remarkable. But it says, Many shall run to and fro, and at the same time it says, And knowledge shall increase. I believe it's Mr. Ames' program where he talks about. Uh, uh, the, about, about knowledge. I think it was last week. or No, it couldn't have been last week because I, I didn't get a chance to see it. Uh, but the week before. Anyway, it was whenever it was. It was, it was pointing out that uh, IBM has said that, you know, within a, a matter of just a very short time, knowledge is going to double every 12 hours. That's amazing. We're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about being able to Uh, compute at speeds that our minds can't comprehend. Our minds can do it, but we can't comprehend how a machine is going to be able to do so many calculations in such a short period of time. This is a perfect description of our time, the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And how long can that go before we get to the place where all flesh could be wiped off the face of the earth consider what's happening in our world in academia our young people are graduating from high school in fact they're if they're in public school they're already getting some of this to a greater or lesser degree depending on the school but this stuff is coming at them very quickly our universities major universities well known universities talk about Or have such things as safe zones where you can speak your mind in a safe location on the campus. And as we've seen, they're not always so safe. If you don't spew the party line, then you might be punched in the face. They have a term, microaggressions. That was never a part of our vocabulary. I never heard of such a thing growing up. Microaggressions. Oh, you looked at me that way. What did you mean by that? I'm offended. Or, or you said that, I, I've got to be offended by that. And you can be offended, or people will be offended by almost anything you say. If you don't enthusiastically respond to their you know, perversion, whatever it might be, then that can be a microaggression. Just the fact that you didn't get excited and and congratulate them on something that was not correct. Our world is very different. When we were in high school, we didn't have stuffed animals to get us through the day when we didn't get our way. Now that's sad, because that doesn't mean that every young person needs that. Not every young person is offended by some microaggression. Not every young person needs a stuffed animal to get him through the day. But sadly, too many do. And it taints the whole the whole society. We could actually laugh at ourselves. We could tell some jokes that we might be at our own expense, and we could laugh at it. Today, that's a maybe a major aggression, not a microaggression. Consider what is happening geopolitically. Look at Brexit. This is a mess over there, isn't it? As is the European Union. It does not look like it's going to survive in the state that it's in right now. And we know that before the end comes, there are going to be ten nations that give their power over to the beast. And we may be viewing, I say maybe, because we don't know every twist and turn along the way. But we may be seeing a, a, a scattering of those nations and then a quick Coming together of those nations. It's interesting that we now have officially and openly uh, are, are asking for information about UFOs. I think they call them something else. And there, there's one particular picture that they show on television when they're talking about this, it's an airline. Or airplane, and it shows this object going off in the distance, and it has black smoke coming out. Now I don't know all the the background on that, but you know that doesn't look like something coming from outer space some some way. That'd be a lot of fuel. If you got black smoke, you're you're burning something. And so the, the question is, has one of our enemies? China, Russia, somebody else, have they leapfrogged over us technologically? We don't know. We don't know. And I think that we shouldn't try to to make uh, solid guesses on that. But we live in a very different world, a dangerous world. Right-wing groups are rising in Hungary, Poland, Italy, and even in Germany. Nazi uh, paraphernalia and ideas are rising up in Italy. But Germany and the ADF party has made a big comeback. France is in turmoil. Macron is terribly unpopular there. And Marie Le Pen has never been able to quite break through and take the lead, but maybe she will if things get bad enough there. There are warnings that God gives us not to fall asleep because He says, as we've seen here and as we can look from history, that certain things happen gradually but then suddenly. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, and verse 32, He says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, we don't know exactly what he means by that generation. Certainly, the the fall of Jerusalem, which is the type of, of the end, Uh, That took place in that generation. But for the end of the age, if the application applies in that way, says this generation will not pass away, where do you you count that generation? Some, well, we've often thought of when man could destroy all flesh from the face of the earth. Uh, Going back to verses 21 and 22. Now, the atomic bomb didn't mean that all flesh could be destroyed, not immediately. The hydrogen bomb brought it closer, but then there had to be the, the means of delivering. There had to be the number of bombs that were produced. And so you'd go at least into the 50s some, some ways, if not up to 1960 or so. I don't know exactly when that is. I don't think anybody can give you an exact uh, indication. Although I think we have generally looked at from the time that uh, man could destroy all life from the face of the earth. And what is a generation? The Bible speaks of different, different lengths for a generation. But what we see is a fig tree putting forth tender shoots. We see these prophecies that God has given us taking place. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. You might hold your place here and uh, just go back to uh, the book of Hosea. It's very interesting when it comes to knowledge. The fourth chapter of Hosea. It describes our world. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Now, no truth. If you look at the news media, you find two extremes. And you watch CNN or MSNBC and you watch Fox and you say, Are they even in the same century? Are they talking about the same events? Because it is so absolutely different, the direction they're going. At least one of them is telling a lie, if not both. There's no truth or mercy. They don't really care how many lives they destroy as long as they stay in power or get into power. Or knowledge of God in the land, by swearing and lying, killing and stealing, committing adultery, they break all restraint. All restraint is being broken with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. And that prophecy is being fulfilled. The fish of the sea. The fisheries around Newfoundland collapsed. They're coming back slowly, but how long will that last? Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge." Isn't that an amazing statement? And the age of knowledge. When knowledge shall increase, as we read there in Daniel, the 12th chapter. Nevertheless, we're going to be destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. In other words, this is knowledge that they are rejecting. Rejecting the knowledge of of God's Word. Oh yes, plenty of other knowledge, but not the right knowledge. He says, I also will reject you from being priest for me, because you have forgotten the law of your God. That's what knowledge they have forgotten, they are suppressing. I also will forget your children. Now let's go back to Matthew 24. Do we not see that happening? And he says, when you see these events that he described earlier in Matthew 24, he says, when you see those things happening, know that... Summer is near. Verse 33, So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Then he says in verse 36, But of that day an hour no one knows, not even the angel of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were carrying on life as normal, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. They're just going to go along. People get used to things. We're very adaptable, and we get used to things as they are. Even as times get worse, we get used to it. And so we carry on, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he gives us a warning there. He he says that when it happens, it's going to happen. People are going to carry on like everything's normal. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. An hour that we do not expect. Now, it's interesting there, he says, two women are grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. It's simply saying that you can be in a very close relationship. As it says in Luke's account, you know, two will be in the same bed. You can have a husband and a wife. And one's going to be taken, the other's left. And it talks about not going back to uh, retrieve what's, what's in the house. If you're on the housetop, just leave. Talk about a time of fleeing. One will be taken, another will be left. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler of his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. In other words, doing the will of God. Doing the will of God. That's what we are to be doing. Assuredly I say to you, verse 47, that he will make him ruler over his goods, but. If that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him at an hour he is not aware of. Now this tells us that we're going to have to wait for that time. We don't know when that time is. But he says it's going to come at a time you think not. And he says that there are going to be those who think that the Lord has delayed His coming. Or, as we read in Peter, that He's way off. Not just delayed a few years, but way off. And, and this is really a warning for, I, I think especially, not, not alone, but especially for our young people, because it's so easy to get caught up in the things of youth. And to want to have life, you know, crammed in before it all ends. I remember we used to talk about marriage on the rocks. We thought that we might not get married till we got to Petra. and you know the big rocks there, Marriage on the rocks. Uh, but that was a long time ago, wasn't it? We don't know. It, it's so important that young people keep the the big picture in mind. and and not just young people, because some of us are older, doesn't mean that we're immune. To getting caught up in this world as well. But we, we need to recognize there are going to be people who think that the Lord has delayed his coming. Well, he certainly has delayed it from what we thought was going to be the case. So it didn't come as quickly as we thought. But he's saying here that when it does come, it, it's going to come more quickly or at a time that you think not. And so he sa- He gives us a warning Don't go about, you know, beating your servant or just living in this life and and getting caught up in all the wars. We could say on internet wars, all that sort of thing, getting caught up in it all. Begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, just partying, having a good time. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him as portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are going to be people who think that they have more time to be a part of the world. And it's going to happen very quickly. 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, I don't know if that means that there's going to be some sort of a Uh, declared peace in the world where we think we've gotten past the world's ills, or if it's just thinking that people on on a day-to-day basis, well, peace and safety, everything's okay. He says, sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as the helmet, the hope of salvation. That should be what we're looking for, is salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. You know, it's easy to get distracted, whether we're young or whether we're old. It's so easy to get distracted. In fact, if you look at the kings of Judah and Israel, many of them started out well, and they fell away at the end. So this isn't just for young people. It's for all of us. Though we cannot afford to get distracted. How much time do we have? I don't have a clue. But I don't think, uh, personally, and again, so far our projections haven't been very good, but I don't see us going 50 more years. Okay, I think I'm safe to say that. Maybe I should say 100, but I don't. I can't see this. I can't see it going 50 more years. There's too much that is happening in our world. There's too much turmoil. There are too many people with too many weapons. The news today: the president is praising Japan for buying so many of our weapons. We're arming the world. In fact, there's a prophecy that says, wake up and beat your plowshares into swords at the very end of the age and your pruning hooks into spears. We see a a world that is armed to the teeth, and we see a world that is losing all sense of rationality. We have an immoral world. We have a lot of things that are happening in our world today. It's easy to get distracted, but when people lose sight of the big picture, they fail to distinguish all kinds of things. The importance of marrying within the church, as an example. We cannot know the exact time, but we must stay alert. One final verse is Romans 13. Romans 13. This is one thing we can say for certain. Romans 13. This applies no matter how long you think it's going to be. In verse 11, he says, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Now, Paul told those people back then how much more it applies to us today. For now our salvation is nearer than we, when we first believed. Now, if you first believed five minutes ago, it's nearer. But for many of us, it's been not five years, but 50 years, or even 55 or 60 years since we first believed. And maybe for some, even more than that. It's nearer than we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. And that's one of the things that we have these activities to talk about. What is proper? How do we conduct ourselves among ourselves? Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in envy and strife, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So, brethren, how much time do we have? It'll come upon us gradually, but then suddenly. Suddenly.